So uh, today the title of the sermon is a little bit different. It's Burn the Ships. How many of you like playing with fire? Amen? Come on. All right. Security team, watch out for those people that just admitted they're arsonists. Now, as a kid, I, I, I love to play with fire. I got in trouble uh, for doing it quite a bit. And, uh, but the title today is a little bit weird, Burn the Ships. Hernan Cortez was a Spanish conquistador in 1519 during the conquest of Mexico. And Cortez and his men had arrived on the coast of Mexico in Veracruz. And they faced significant challenges, including the resistance of indigenous people and the possibility of mutiny among his own men. So Cortez ordered the burning of his own ships. Here's a, an artist depiction of what that might look like. This leader, Cortez, understood that in order to motivate his soldiers to commit fully to the conquest and eliminate any thought of retreat, he needs to remove their means of escape. So he ordered the burning of his own ships, a symbolic and practical move that left his men with only one option, to advance into the unknown and conquer the Aztec Empire or face potential defeat and death. Imagine if you're in that crew and this leader, you know, says, all right, we're going to burn these ships because we aren't going back. That would be a big, uh, you know, uh, message to your crew. And I believe if it was me, I'd be pretty mad about it. But it's a bold decision. And it's known in history as the uh, Noche Triste or the Night of Sorrows. And it marked a pivotal moment in Cortez's campaign. Now, obviously, it's a somber moment as well in history because a culture was wiped out. But this phrase is now etched in our language, burn the ships. This story remains. And this event served as a demonstration of one's man's, uh, one man's determination and resolve. Cortez and his men had no choice but to march forward, and their actions would reshape the history of the Americas. Two years later, he succeeded in his conquest of the Aztec Empire. Now, there's a similar story found in the Old Testament. How many of you that have been Christians for a while have trouble remembering who is Elijah and who is Elisha? You can be honest, right? I'm, I'm really bad with that type of stuff. But there's these true, two prominent figures in Hebrew Scripture uh, in the Old Testament, and they lived about 900 years before Christ. So that's after the kingdom of David and Solomon, but before the exile of Israel to Babylon. So you have Elijah and Elisha, and they had a close and significant relationship. Their connection is characterized by mentorship and succession and the passing of authority from one generation to the next generation. Elijah was a bold prophet of God, and he stood against the wicked king Ahab and queen Jezebel. And he did some miraculous things to show uh, the people that he was sent from God. 
So that's Elijah. He's the older one. And Elisha was the younger. And he was Elijah's protege. Elisha became Elijah's faithful disciple and traveled with him, learning from his mentor's experience and teaching. Elisha learned about the miraculous deeds performed by Elijah through the power of God, like the raising of the widow's son from the dead and the confrontation uh, with the prophets of Baal on uh, the Mount Carmel where Elijah called down fire from heaven. All these things done by God through Elijah. One of the most well-known stories that highlights their relationship is Elijah's ascent into heaven in a chariot of fire, which is described in 2 Kings chapter 2, 1 through 14. So he gets taken up into heaven. But before Elijah's departure, Elisha requested a double portion of his mentor's uh, spiritual power, the way that God had used him. And Elijah's mantle... This this piece of clothing fell to Elisha, signifying his request had been granted. And Elisha went on to become a powerful prophet in his own right, performing numerous miracles and acts of God's power. He inherited Elijah's role as a prophet, and he continued to speak on God's behalf to the people of Israel. You don't often see uh, many successful leader transitions like this. There's a lot of emotions and uh, uh, you know, an ego that you have to put to the sides in order for this to work out. But right at the beginning of their relationship, right at the start of this relationship between Elijah and Elisha, Elisha did something pretty amazing. Now, at this point in Elijah's, the older one's life, He was discouraged. It's before he met Elijah. He was discouraged, and he was uh, being chased, and he was running for his life. He felt like he was the only one that was serving God, and he even got to the point where he was suicidal. Things were bad, but God spoke to Elijah in that moment, and he told him that he wasn't alone. And then he sent Elijah to go and find a farmer that was working in the field, and that is when Elijah met Elisha. We see this in 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 19. So he, that's Elijah, departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him, and he was with the 12. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him, And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me kiss my father and mother, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, Elijah says to Elisha, Go back again, for what have I done to you? And he returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes of of the oxen and gave it to the people, and they ate. And then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. So the the younger Elisha is out minding his own business, plowing a field with a bunch of cows. And then, like a teammate throwing the baseball bat to the next man up, Elijah throws his cloak on Elisha. And this was a symbol that Elisha should follow him. He would be the next Elijah, the next prophet of God. And apparently, God was preparing Elisha's heart Because 
he immediately left behind the oxen and the plow and let Elijah know that he was all in. He was ready to follow him. Elisha asked first to go and kiss his parents goodbye. And Elijah says, go back again for what have I done to you? Scholars and translators are split on what this statement means. It could mean, go ahead and go say goodbye to your parents, but don't forget what I have done by calling you to follow me. So it could mean that, or it could mean uh, more of a rebuke. Go back? I just called you to follow me. Why would you go back? Now that second statement to us might seem extreme, but there is precedent in other passages for this kind of statement pushing against excuses to delay in following. Here's one example from Jesus in Luke chapter 9, verse 59. Jesus said, to this, uh, said this to a man once, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. That seems pretty weird, right? Let the dead bury their dead. That seems cold. It seems like something that we wouldn't want to say. But we don't know the circumstances here. We don't know whether this man's father had passed away. More than likely, he hadn't because he was there. And they had this whole long process of what to do during one of those situations where someone passes away. So it's most likely his father hadn't yet passed away. We don't even know if his father was older or his father was sick. How long was this man asking for? What we see here, though, is Jesus stresses urgency, and he sees this statement as an excuse, and he calls the man to follow him. There's another example of the parable of the banquet where guests are invited to a wonderful banquet, but everyone the man asks uh, has an excuse of why they couldn't come. One man had bought a piece of land and needed to go check them out, and the other man had bought some cattle and he wanted to go try them out, and one man was uh, just married, so he couldn't come. Blame his wife for it, right? Because of their excuses and procrastination, though, they lost the invitation. So instead, this man that was having this wonderful banquet invited all these other people that were poor and sick and destitute, saying, whosoever will may come. And this was a message to the people of Israel who had rejected Jesus, who had rejected God's plan, and that all were welcome to come. But we see all these excuses as to why they could. I bought a piece of land. I've got... Uh, new cows that we got to, you know, do things with. I don't know what you have to do with new cows. But I'm just married. We're decorating the house. I don't know what all these things were, but they were excuses. And because of their excuses, they lost an opportunity. And it's easy for us to make excuses. The things of this world that are temporary seem so important that we tend to put off the most valuable, the eternal things. So back to our story. So we can't tell whether or not Elisha actually went and kissed his parents goodbye, but what he did do next made very obvious his attentions. He wasn't going to make excuses to kick the can down the road or to hem and haw. 
He was going to do something that was drastic. Elisha was a wealthy farmer. He had 12 teams of oxen. That's, that's uh, 24 head of cattle. How many of y'all have anybody in the crowd have that many cattle? He's richer than all of us, right? That's not a small amount. So Elijah, or excuse me, Elisha, see, I told you I'd mess up. Elisha had 24 cows, and he takes those cows, he breaks up the wooden yokes, and he lights a fire with the wood, and then he cooks those oxen as a sacrifice to God. And he throws a big barbecue for everyone, and it feeds a slew of people. I did the math. It might not be right, but I did it. Uh, <laughs> 24 cows is 36,000 hamburger patties. That's a substantial sacrifice, especially with inflation today, right? In today's cost, that's something like a $100,000 sacrifice. Elisha had a stable and a secure future that he sacrificed to become a disciple of Elijah and to follow the Lord God. And so doing, he chose living a much more modest lifestyle with no riches, perhaps no even home, following God with his life. There was no turning back. Couldn't just go back to being a farmer. He burned the ships behind him. Jesus' earliest disciples made a similar sacrifice in Matthew chapter 4, verse 18. Jesus is walking by the Sea of Galilee, and he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. And they're casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and they followed him. Peter and Andrew left their livelihood behind. Nets weren't cheap. Boats weren't cheap. But they left behind all of that to follow Jesus. In the verses right after Jesus told the dead to bury their dead that we read just a few moments ago, another man had a similar response to what Elijah said when Jesus said to follow him. Elijah said to follow him, excuse me. This man said to Jesus that he wanted to say goodbye to his family first. Luke chapter 9, verse 61, and you'll see the parallels here. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. And you see the New Testament allusion to what Elisha did in the Old Testament. Jesus is saying, you, you have all these excuses of things you've got to do first, but you can't look back. When we say that God is first and foremost in our life, it literally, we are called for that to be true. He calls us to follow him first. And now when we follow him, we endeavor to treat our friends and family with love and respect, but that does not mean that they are in front of him. Extreme, unreasonable, uncomfortable sacrifice. That isn't the type of faith that neatly fits into the nice, pretty life that you have made. Truly 
following Jesus is disruptive. It's inconvenient. It messes up your schedule. It messes up your plans. And some of us need to burn some boats behind us. So we don't go back to who we were before. Some of us need to get all in in following Jesus and put all our eggs in that basket. Not just being a casual Christian that tiptoes through life trying to be just close enough to God and just close enough to all the things that we want to do. We need to burn the ships behind us so we don't go back. We need to clear our schedule, make room, back off some commitments that aren't eternal. And our friends and family might not understand. They might try to tell us that we're going too far. Amen. Come on. (laughs) But Jesus calls us to follow him like that old song says, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. The world behind me, the cross before me, though none go with me, still I will follow. No turning back. Truly following Jesus means putting aside time that you could be doing other important things in order to spend time with Jesus. To make space for silence and scripture and prayer. Don't just wait for space to open up. You make space. And this means that we have to spend time building Christian community, this body of Christ that God has called us to be a part of. No one can give you community. You have to build it. And it costs something. Sometimes when people come to church, they think that that's what should happen, that you just plug into a community and you just jump in and all of a sudden everything's great and you've got somebody to pray with and you've got someone to pray for you. You have to build it. It doesn't happen on accident. And it doesn't come from the people on the stage. It happens when you learn people's names and you go out to eat with them and you... Uh, Call them or text them and say, hey, let me be real. Let me get past the weather and the sports and let me talk to you about who I really am. You have to build it. Not just sign up for a life group and then skip every time it's hard. You've got to make space. Make a priority to follow Jesus together with each other. Not just serving one time uh, as a, a mission project, but living a life on mission. Personally, living like a missionary to Harrison County. There's nothing that gets me more excited than when I hear about the awesome things that you do in the community that was not scheduled by Clarksburg Baptist Church. That means we're living it out. That means that we're allowing the Holy Spirit to speak to our hearts, and we see a need, and we fill a need, and we go and do it. Not a program, not an organization, but a person that loved Jesus so much they acted. Not just to serve Jesus for a little while and then get offended by something small and quit. Truly following Jesus means radical forgiveness. 
It means not being easily offended and, and instead loving each other and fighting for unity and putting others first and their preferences and their opinions in order to love them like Jesus does. Truly following Jesus means not having to be babied along the way or pushed, but instead to be faithful and dedicated and devoted, pressing through when things get hard. Following Jesus with no turning back. So what's holding you back from being a radical follower of Jesus? Not, not Christian in name only. Not church is something that I do for an hour a week, a couple times a month. But a radical follower of Jesus. An early church type disciple. What priority is over your walk with Christ. What trumps your walk with Christ? Maybe it's a relationship that's holding you back. Maybe a friend. Maybe it's the old you that's holding you back. The things in your past, uh, some uh, habit or bitterness that's holding you back. Maybe it's your leisure time and your entertainment holding you back from radically following Jesus. Maybe it's your job and your wealth building is holding you back. We're not, don't get confused, we're not talking about church attendance. There are people that, uh, you know, live their life radically for Jesus Christ that have to work every other Sunday. My parents grew up uh, both in the medical field, and it, that happens. It, it's uh, understandable, but we've got to live it out every single day of the week. And I don't know if I mentioned your thing that's holding you back. But what are the oxen that you need to barbecue? What are the nets that you need to leave behind? What are the ships that you need to burn? It's popular in American Christianity to soften these blows and to say, hey, God doesn't really mean full surrender. God just wants you to live a happy and, and uh, you know, comfortable life of ease. Just do your best. But the gospel calls us to radical sacrifice. It calls us to something real and something deep. And those things aren't comfortable because it costs something. It means we don't do this thing over here in order to follow Jesus. It means we clear our schedule to meet with believers and to drive deeper into the gospel and to disciple people and to pull people alongside of us. You know, some of the reason, you know, I grew up in going to church Sunday morning, Sunday school, Sunday morning, Sunday night. I had choir practice before that. I had soul winning on Monday, a Wednesday night prayer meeting. I had Sunday morning bus ministry. I was at the church more than I was at home. And you might say, well, that's great, except for that I didn't know anybody that needed to, to become a follower of Jesus Christ. And when I was in the building so much, my light wasn't leaving the building. And we purposefully leave space for you as a church family to be out there. 
to be in the community because there are people out in this community that are hopeless and they feel alone and they feel like they can't go another day and they feel like they are dejected and they are marginalized and they don't have the hope of Jesus Christ and we've got to go there. And we come here to celebrate what Jesus has done to us. And we go in our life groups to be built up and discipled. And then we live on mission the rest of the week. That's on purpose. So that we might choose radical forgiveness and have space to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit to the darkest places in our community. And we could say, you know, God just wants you to be happy and comfortable and for everything to be easy. But that's not what the Bible shows us. A life of purpose and relationship with Jesus Christ leads to some messy and some broken places. Because he sends us. It wasn't comfortable for Elijah or to call this man and for Elisha to leave behind his parents, and his livelihood. wasn't comfortable to leave for the disciples to leave behind everything they knew to follow Jesus. And there might be some things that you need to leave in the past. There might be some ships that you need to burn. Let's all bow our heads and close our eyes as the band comes. We just spent last week, hopefully, being thankful for what God has done for us. And that is the motivation here. It's not guilt. It's not shame. The motivation here is God has done so much for us. I just want to give something back. Something pure and something holy. Something that lasts And so we say, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. I can't turn back. I burned the ships. I'm setting out to a place of radical forgiveness. Something that doesn't make sense. Maybe God's calling you to step out by faith and and to plan and to put in the effort to start something in your life that helps people see Jesus. Maybe you know that he's been dealing with your heart about jumping into some ministry or some mission effort. Maybe it's to Step out and finally have that conversation with someone that you love and someone that you know about what Jesus means to you. Maybe it's leaving some things behind that are holding you back. Some habits, some stuff. Some priorities that are at the top that might not even deserve to be on the list. They have our attention and they have our heart. 
every single one of us struggle with this keeping the right direction keeping Jesus Christ at the top so many things are fighting to have your attention Jesus needs to be at the center God first As we continue in this attitude of prayer, dealing with what God's dealing with our heart about, I want to speak to just a few of you in the room that might not know that you are yet a follower of Jesus. Not against him. You're interested. See, we all have this place in our life, this thing called sin. Sin is anything we think or say or do that separates us from God breaks God's law. Sin started way back at the beginning because God gave us a free will to choose his way or our way and we have chosen our way over and over again and it's brought pain and misery and hurt and brokenness into this world and we hurt each other. We hurt God. And that separation is serious. The Bible says the wages of our sin is death. And that is a separation from God eternally in a place called hell. But Romans 5, 8 says that God commended his love towards us. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus in my place, that's the gospel. We had sin in our lives that we couldn't fix. We couldn't pay the debt. Jesus paid it for us on the cross 2,000 years ago born of a virgin. That's what we celebrate this time of year. God came to us, Emmanuel, God with us. And he walked this earth and he lived a perfect and a holy life. And he laid down his life on the cross, an innocent person dying for all of us guilty people. And then on the third day, he rose again from the grave. And if you haven't yet decided to to put your faith and trust in Jesus. The Bible says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You can decide to follow him right now in this moment. That's what brings you back into relationship with the God that made you and created you. Forgiveness of your sins. When you put your faith and trust in Jesus because he paid the price already. And you can call out to him. The words aren't important. It's not a pledge of allegiance. It's a cry from your heart to his saying, God, I know I'm a sinner. And I know because of my sin that I deserve help. God, forgive me. Turning from my sin and I'm turning put my faith in what you did on the cross to save me. Thank you, Lord, for saving me. If that's you today, you just made that choice. That's amazing. The biggest thing you could ever do, become a follower of Jesus. Bible calls it being born again. The old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. It is so much more than just a place 
in heaven in the next life. It's a relationship right now with Jesus Christ, with God the Father, the one that created you. It's purpose, and it's love, and it's never being alone, and knowing that God is good and God is in control. If you made that choice today, that's amazing. We want to celebrate with you. If you'd write that on your connection card before you turn it into one of these boxes here on the sides of the sanctuary, and you'd write down there at the bottom, I chose Jesus. We'd love to be able to follow up with you about what that means. Heavenly Father, God in heaven, Lord, we struggle with call from your word that is so different than what this world tells us. That we need to be the center of our lives and that we, it's all about what I want and what I need and what I desire and my identity. God, help us instead to put you at the center and everything else a distant second. Help us to get rid of and to burn the ships of anything that doesn't line up with your will for our lives. Give us discernment. Convict us where we need to change. God, help us to become a more streamlined and focused church on the community that you have called us to go to, on this body of believers that you have given us help us to put you right at the middle of everything. In your name we pray.